I'm Jackson Licka and welcome to this episode of our 2016 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Strip-Tilling as a Journey, Not a Destination, is being brought to you by BlueJet. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series. Currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it added. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get alerts when future episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to BlueJet for sponsoring today's episode. For more than four decades, BlueJet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found BlueJet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800 800- Six five eight three one two seven. When visiting with strip tillers, I always like to discover their motivating factors for adopting the practice. For some, there was an aha moment and defining circumstances that prompted a change to their tillage practices. For others, it was a more gradual realization that the way they'd historically farmed wasn't in the best interest of their soil health and crop needs. But whatever the reason, strip tillers all have a starting point and a story to tell. This is certainly true of Northfield, Minnesota farmer David Legbold, who began his journey from conventional tillage to strip till nearly four decades ago. In today's Strip Till Farmer podcast brought to you by BlueJet, we welcome David to share the details of his ongoing strip till odyssey to include equipment modifications, residue management preferences, and fertility placement practices. Very pleased to be here because, as you can see from the title of uh, the program, uh, there is a story to be told. But what's really exciting is that I have one story, and in this room there are hundreds of stories, and we need to bring those together and find ways to share ideas that make our operations a little bit better, help us to feel better about what we are doing. Uh, my past is not really connected with farming. I'm a retired public school teacher, administrator, um, retired uh, John Deere Company employee after eight years, retired director of education at an environmental learning center, uh, retired watershed uh, partnership executive director, and that's why my wife says, you're just a has-been and I really uh, am. But the strand through all of that was farming. When I began farming, I had this wonderful idealistic picture that I could be an organic farmer, I could raise hay, corn, soybeans, and, and have a beef herd, which I did. And as I farmed organically, I watched what was happening to my soil. I fall plowed. I 
spring cultivated, spring disked, you know, keep the weeds down. And then when my crop was up and growing, I would sometimes row crop cultivate three or four times. And I noticed that the gullying and the degradation of my soil was appreciable. But I thought, organic, gosh, that, that just sounds like the right thing to do. So I began to move away from that and think about soil quality, soil preservation, soil building. And that took me into a journey of no-till. And finally, a great way to place nutrient and to still prepare a good seed bed was strip-till. And so I'd like to take you on that, uh, that journey and examine a little bit about who we are as farmers. Farmers have a great deal within their hearts. So I'd like to know who are the strip-till farmers out there today? Who are the strip-tillers? Look around. This is progress. And farmers have uh, a wealth of experience. There are some of us who have sent our sons and daughters off for national service. And we pray to God that they will come back safe and sound and rejoin us in our life. We have stood out in a field after a hailstorm has gone by and looked at the devastation and think, what next? That's what makes us all farmers and we share that common story. Uh, we have perhaps been doing work in the field and all of a sudden there's that awful clatter from the engine of your 4430 and you just know that the trip to the repair shop is going to be extensive. So those are the things that make us farmers, that make us people connected with agriculture. So we as farmers uh, have a story to tell. And we're also looking for better ways to do things. If one horse didn't do your tillage very well, then let's get seven horses and a bigger plow and really make things fly. So we were looking for ways to do things better, faster. And if seven horses wouldn't do the job, oh, then we move up. We move to the F-14 with 14 horsepower. And mechanical horsepower brought us a new dimension in how we are farming. However, if we look at the tractor seat, I think that helps us to trace the journey of technology. So this is a 1937 Model A John Deere. And you'll notice the comfort cushion spring that holds the seat in place. You'll notice the conveniently located operator controls. You'll also notice that there is a spacious dual function operators platform. You can either stand or sit. You can't do that in modern tractors. And the form-fitting seat with five holes. The five-hole seat represents the 37 John Deere A. And this is such a great tractor that there are some uh, critters that put a deposit down on it. I think they wanted to buy it. So we've got the, the deposit sitting on the tractor. The 37 John Deere A compared to a modern John Deere tractor. The seat, much, much different. But the controls, also much different. This tells us that we've made tremendous technological progress in our mechanical aspects. Biological aspects, genetics, chemistry, many of the aspects of farming have developed technologically 
in ways that we never thought possible. Uh, when I worked for Deere, it was one of my jobs to work with the technicians on the service advisor program. And when they took me to school and said, let's adjust the ride characteristics of this tractor by plugging a laptop into the, the bus of the tractor, and I could adjust how that tractor rode, I thought, my lord, we've come a long, long ways. And that was several years ago. We've come much farther than that. John Deere also brought us this wonderful device, uh, the plow. He took a broken saw blade that would polish, that would scour, and made a plow that farmers thought was just the greatest. The moldboard plow helped us to break the prairies, helped us to um, make a good seed bed. The moldboard plow also has with it some liabilities. We still, today, use that same technology from 1838 to treat our soils. A uh, good, clean job of plowing. And uh, that used to be the measure of success. Oh yes, measure of success was not only clean plowing, as my father used to say, do store bait. In other words, you steer straight, because there needed to be straight furrows and clean plowing. <laughs> that measure of success no longer applies, although it's pretty common. So corn stalks. What do we do about corn stalks? We read a lot about residue management. We read a lot about the liabilities of residue. And when it comes to managing corn stalks, um, I had an interesting story about uh, when I wanted to trade corn heads, um, I asked for a corn head that had fluted rolls. Because when I was out in the field <clears throat> and I looked at corn that had been harvested, I saw these sickening little things. Corn stalks that had been run through a chopping corn head and sheared off and made into a really stiff little punji stick that did wonders for tractor tires and other equipment. And so dealing with corn stalks by chopping them off, making them real sharp, um, projections out of the soil just didn't seem to be the way I wanted to go. So I wanted to do something else with my corn stalks. <clears throat> and I like them long and flabby so that a tractor tire could drive over that and not be damaged. And I thought, you know, doing all that chopping and stuff to help the corn stalks break down I wanted to preserve this on the surface of the soil to feed the biology of the soil. So these big, long, flabby corn stalks I thought were my friend. Well, it took my local John Deere dealer quite a few days to find a John Deere corn head that didn't have chopping rolls. He finally found one off in some faraway dealership and they brought it in for me to look at and I bought it, but it was just, boy, Legvold, you are so weird. Why do you want fluted rolls instead of chopping rolls? And we spend a great deal of money chopping our stalks, uh, shredding our stalks, and then plowing them under. And corn stalks seems to me to be a, a pretty good resource. So a metric ton of carbon dioxide in the first 24 hours equates to C, one molecule of carbon, two of oxygen. 
And if we take those three molecules and we understand that about a third of that metric ton is going to be atmospheric carbon that used to be soil carbon, then we know what's happening and we know why Jerry Hatfield of Iowa State says we have lost half the native organic matter that was present in our soils pre-settlement, basically from tillage. And so we find that if we can avoid tillage, we avoid losing our soil character and organic matter through um, atmospheric discharge. And people get kind of in a fluff about how much diesel fuel is burned. If it takes three gallons of diesel fuel to plow an acre of soil, each gallon of diesel fuel emits about 22 pounds of CO2, so there's 66 pounds. It's virtually nothing compared to what the soil releases into the atmosphere. The first way I like to treat my corn stalks is to go out and plant no-till soybeans. I use a John Deere 1560 20-foot no-till drill. It has lots of those little press wheels and gauge wheels that squeeze the stalks down to the soil, make it available for the soil bugs. And so in the, in the, in the growing season, you can see that the stalks are smaller. And if we pull aside some of the residue, there's worm holes, there's worm castings, good evidence of biological activity feeding on those corn stalks that I did not chop or shred or plow under. There's nothing that irritates an angleworm more than if you bury its food six inches deep, so I leave it on the top. Along with tillage, we have the liabilities of erosion and losing our topsoil into the lowlands or into the county ditch. Um, so tillage has its uh, liabilities in many other ways. So who's taking care of the land? Now I want to pick on Minnesota a little bit. In Minnesota, we hear nobody cares about good soil and clean water more than farmers. And farmers are the original environmentalists. And farmers produce more by using less. Minnesota farmers are the best. And we have a moral obligation to feed the world. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe these are empty platitudes that we cannot back up with any kind of data. It does nothing to prove what kind of a job we are doing as stewards of the soil. It's just intended to help us feel good. I'm not into feeling good. I'm into knowing that what we're doing as farmers really works. So let's take a look at this trend. People say, well, you know, more farmers are doing good conservation. In the southern corner of Minnesota, we have an eight-dealer John Deere uh, consortium. This is what the trend to moldboard plow sales looks like. Fairly steady increase all along. And if you have more horses than a 10-bottom John Deere plow requires, you can go for the import from Canada, the Salford plow, 12 and 14 bottom, and you can put all 550 horses to work. And you can see that that sales trend is also on the increase. So we have uh, some of the experts in Minnesota. Our NRCS state con says farmers are doing extensive tillage without understanding the science. And our Minnesota Ag Water Resources Director, the soil erosion and compaction. We need to keep our soil in place, and they're absolutely right. But how do we get that message out to our neighbors? So how do we deal with better soils? 
Uh, St. Olaf College asked me if I would rent their land because they found that 30 years of moldboard plowing and continuous corn had turned their soil into the consistency of a ground up formica tabletop and they wanted something different. So they asked me if I would do no-till. Oh yes, I can do no-till. Well, what will that do for our land? I said, well, the first thing you'll notice, it will reduce erosion considerably and then soil quality will improve. And after the first year of planting no-till soybeans, this was the result. This horrendous gully, and not the only one. And what I discovered was the, the hydrology of this soil was so strange that water could not soak in. And after 30 years of mistreatment, there was no porosity, very little organic matter, and the only choice the water had was to run off. And I thought, oh boy, I sold the college a bill of goods about no-till. So we had to address groundwater. And there's significant groundwater. You can see that there's tile plow uh, marks uh, on either side there where we had uh, put uh, tile in to address the groundwater problem. So well-drained soil, tile it if you need. I started with no tillage when I really should have started with water management. So we drain the soil, that leads to the ability to do less tillage. It also helps us to increase the organic matter. That will begin to build as you reduce tillage. More biological life, the worms and bugs and macroinvertebrates, their population grows along nicely with greater food availability. We find that the soil becomes more porous as the, the bugs do the mining for us and the, the plowing of the soil, so the water can indeed infiltrate. Aggregate stability was something that my friends, students at St. Olaf taught me. Uh, what that really is, is the stuff that holds the soil together. You've all seen where a field cultivator pass has gone through and then a rainstorm has come and the disaggregated soil is gone and what's left is the soil that has good aggregate stability. That's the stuff that holds the soil together. Um, fungal growth, um, sugars, all kinds of stuff, and the leavings from um, insects, macroinvertebrates that are working in the soil. So somebody said, give me a simple term that explains aggregate stability. And I said, a good simple term is worm snot. It's what holds the soil together. We have increased nutrient cycling in the soil. The biological activity is like a furnace. It's really starting to work and that helps you to um, recycle those nutrients. And we have greater water holding capacity which leads to less water hitting the tile lines. And so it is a cyclical thing and that leads us to healthy soils. Well, this is a chunk of what I would regard as healthy soil. It's full of holes. If you think of uh, disaggregated soil as a handful of chocolate cake mix, you pour water on it, it runs out of your hand. If you think of this healthy soil as a good piece of chocolate cake, you can pour water on it and it will absorb and it'll still stay in your hand. So it's that stability of the soil and a vibrant biological community. We'll get back to David's discussion shortly, but I want to again thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for making this program possible. 
For more than four decades, Bluejet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found Bluejet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, Bluejet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them at 800-658-3127. Reflecting on David's thoughts so far, he highlighted some of the warning signs that years of continuous deep tillage began to reveal on his farm. Gaining a better understanding of soil health and biology prompted David's transition to no-till and then to strip-till. And he's since become an advocate for feeding organic soil activity based on the success he's seen on his own operation. One revelation came with his treatment of corn residue and a shift from chopping and shredding stalks to the use of fluted corn rolls to distribute residue on top of the soil. As he said, nothing irritates worms more than burying their food six inches deep with excessive tillage. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from David Legvold on equipment setups and modifications that have enhanced his strip-till system. So I wanted to enhance my soil and I was fortunate enough to uh, be asked to present um, the benefits of our watershed organization at a, a strip-till conference and there were eight different strip-till machines and we were able to watch them all work and they worked well and some did not do well in freshly combined wheat straw. I wanted a machine that had rotating parts that would not plug up. And I happened to have a, a neighbor and associate who was starting to build this machine. And uh, I looked at the alpha and the beta machine and I said, wow, Mark, there's a lot of steel in this machine. It's really built. And he's a fairly profane man and he said, I hate to fix. And so I knew that the machine was going to really hang together. And the factory is local. Uh, there was good service avail availability. Uh, it has, carries a fertilizer cart. I required a scale on the cart so I can keep track of my product movement. And I wanted a good air delivery system. I also wanted a system that would uh, allow me to not be changing shear bolts and, and cushion springs and that kind of stuff. One of the other features I liked about this machine was the airbag down pressure system. Um, you can vary it based on the air pressure and you can adjust the depth. And if you hit something, it's going to flex right up and go over it. This also has a two-phase system where you can change the, the working tools but you, what you come up with is this nice um, seed bed, a little berm. I pull this tool with a 4650 John Deere. That's my newest tractor. It has slightly less than 6,000 hours. And I'm kind of a science geek, so I calculate how much fuel is used per acre. And consistently, it's 6 tenths of a gallon per acre to do strip tillage compared to the ripping, the disking, the field cultivating that I used to do. And it prepares a nice seed bed 
there are little white dots in that soil spectrum that indicate that the fertilizer that I wanted to apply is mixed into the zone rather nicely. How did I afford that? I had applied for a CSP contract and I was able to uh, place that over 800 acres and it was enough to buy the Soil Warrior and the steering system uh, with enough money left to take my wife to the Dairy Queen at least twice. So that was a good way to go and I encourage people who are looking at changing or uh, trying to find funding for the, these things to go to the uh, NRCS website and get into um, CSP and EQIP. And I have added um, enhancements along the way. So my first uh, endeavor was a five-year contract with landowners and NRCS <coughs> that basically bought the Soil Warrior. And then I added on enhancements, such as high residue cropping, placing the phosphorus two inches into the soil, fertilizer placed no more than 30 days ahead of planting, and to do plant tissue testing at the end of the season, and then to do intensive no-till or strip-till. And those enhancements can be added on as you go. I encourage you to find that website and look at the various activities that are described. Find those that fit your operation. Take them with you to your NRCS office and say, this is what I wanna do. It's much better than going in and saying, what can I do? You come prepared with the ideas. And I found that that worked a lot better. Uh, another uh, thing that we've um, worked at is manure placement using strip tillage. Uh, when I was executive director of our watershed organization, I wrote a grant to the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency to do experimental placement of manure low rates in strips. And our experiment was to use high rates of manure, 7,000 gallons per acre, uh, or 1,500 gallons, which was the agronomically correct amount, and then no manure. To be sure that we were starting at ground zero, we tested the waters for E. coli. We were hunting for E. coli with manure applications. And that's the day of application. We ran the, what I call the slobber warrior down the field at 7,000 gallons an acre and the honey warrior. And this is what it looked like afterward. Within about an hour and a half or two on a bright sunny day, I could have gone in and planted on top of the manure. The heavy rate had to come back with a field cultivator and incorporated according to the manure management rules in Minnesota. And so what were the results? Uh, tile one was the 7,000 gallons. Tile two, the 1,500. Tile three, no manure. These numbers indicate something called colony forming units. In other words, live E. coli bugs. And we found that in this field, there was somewhere around 10 to 14 uh, colony forming units per 100 milliliters of water. That's about like a sip from the bottom of a coffee cup. First year was a dry year. We didn't get much in the way of E. coli bugs. The second year, we had some good rain and the heavy manure application did demonstrate 
more E. coli coming out of the tile lines to the degree of 44.3 colony forming units per 100 milliliters. So what is the Minnesota standard for body contact in surface waters? Anybody know? It's 126 CFUs. And the tile water coming out was one third of that. So in other words, that water was cleaner than some of the stuff that I take my grandkids go to go water skiing in. And it was puzzling. Why should the E. coli level be that low? And one of my biology professor friends said, well, you've been no-tilling. There's a robust biologic community, and that leads to increased E. coli mortality. Big scientific stuff, which means if you've got a good, vibrant soil, it's going to take out a lot of the harmful bacteria that might end up in your tile lines. The third year, uh, you can see the yields. Of course, heavy manure, more yield. But when I considered how much I had to pay for the manure, whoops, to buy it from my neighbor, uh, not much profitability in over-application of manure. Some folks worry about, do I have to buy a different planter to do strip-till planting? The answer is no. I used my faithful old 7,000. I made sure that it had good um, residue managers, and I also did some structural refabrication and put on single disc John Deere fertilizer inserters. Any, any of the products we have today would work just fine. But that's what I did to the old planter in order to use it in strip till. So St. Olaf College is a great partner. We do a lot of research using the Iowa State N calculator as the basis. We're looking at different kinds of nitrogen regimes. Uh, this year, they're focusing on using nitrogen stabilizer as opposed to not. And over the years, we have side-dressed the additional nitrogen using this home-built rig with uh, Yetter appliances. And they sample a lot of stuff. So I get a tremendous amount of data on soil quality and all of the components that make up good soil quality. And they take the soil, or the stock samples, and that kind of tells the story. The soil and the tissue can tell a great story if you analyze the data. And it's helped me to fine tune my um, nitrate program. There's an article on the back table called Fine Tuning N Rates in Strip-Tilled Farming. And that was published in the Strip-Till Farmer. Help yourself to about 70 copies, perhaps. There's also another newspaper back there. And there's an article in there in the country living section done by a St. Olaf student on what are the attitudes that farmers have that prevent their adopting new uh, practices. Interesting reading stuff done by non-farm liberal arts kids. Dribbling or injecting, we replicated a study done by Blackmer in Iowa State and found that injecting the liquid nitrate fertilizer was much better than just dribbling it on the top. And this bears out the profitability of that practice. So then other students came along and did more stock nitrate testing, and this one did a pictorial examination of what did the corn look like with different rates of fertilizer. And we found that the high rates uh, were not very profitable. 
And um, it's really interesting when you have a tall, willowy, blonde young woman who is doing the research and she comes up to you and she kind of looks you in the eye and she says, Dave, you lost your ass on that one. <laughs> it's just, it's like lightning strikes when that happens to you. But it's very instructional. So my point is, research whatever you do. We should be able to grow crops with robust amounts of, of residue left and a vibrant biological system. And it would be my hope that our corn would look like this. So I'd encourage you to try one thing each year. Just tinker with it. Um, compare and research, see what works. Uh, move toward better soils with less tillage. And you folks, you know, I'm preaching to the choir on that one. You know about that. And it's apparent that you hold uh, a profitability in your care. So it is my hope that we would all bring to each other our successes and our failures, our hopes and our fears, and we share those with each other on our journey to being better stewards of our soils. And the last thing I'd like you to remember, gosh, farming can be a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you, David, for walking us down the pathway of your strip-till success and sharing some of the cornerstones to a sustainable system. A noteworthy takeaway for me from today's program is the value of seeking out partners to help advance and promote the benefits of strip-till. David has found success with alliances with local educators, companies, and government agencies to help devote a more comprehensive system. As David suggested, it's worthwhile to be proactive in reaching out to local conservation-minded associations, like the NRCS, with ideas, rather than waiting to see what opportunities are available to aid a strip-till transition. Well, again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me a line at 262-777-2441 or send me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or the Google Play Store, and that will allow you to get alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Finally, don't forget to mark your calendar to attend the fourth annual National Strip-Tillage Conference coming up on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Look for more information and updates on the conference at www.striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on December 28th for the final episode in our 2016 podcast series, Adapting Advanced Precision Tools to Bolster Strip-Till ROI, where Wisconsin farmers Eric and Megan Wallendahl will discuss adoption and results of recent farm technology they've added to their strip-till system. 
For David Legbold, Blue Jet, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. Thank you.